Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. Before we begin, we would like to extend our gratitude to members and listeners alike. Whether you are like us, in Peru or the States, or writing us from China or Russia, we appreciate your every download. As always, please feel free to email any comments or questions to info at lapsuslima.com or to give us a nudge with an iTunes review. That old trick question, if a tree falls and no one hears it, does it make a sound, takes on a slightly more vivid meaning when restated as, if a structure lacks users, is it architecture? Though in each instance the physical fact exists, with or without an observer being present, in the case of our paraphrase, the real, interactive nature of phenomena that we often think of as involving objects independent from individuals is brought to attention. The questions remind us that sensory perception with the tree and design for the structure are fundamentally interactions between subjects and the actuality around them. Last episode's discussion of dualism asserted not just a meaningful distinction between spirit and matter, but a mutual influence between the two. Indeed, modern neuroscience is beginning to argue that understanding identity as the relation of inner and outer notes in what Kandinsky described as a musical chord is a far more pragmatic model to work with than earlier framings of the self as isolated ego. But perspective on how self relates to world runs so deeply and can seem so stable that it often takes some time for us to step back far enough so as to glean the outlines of such varying pictures. And even then, what do these interpretive frames have to do with architecture? The answer is quite a great deal, because the way in which the self connects to the world is at the root of architectural process. Treatment of material, and prioritization of value are directly impacted by how one understands the self-world divide. Common to all manner of design is that it is always an aggregate of decisions, and that every design decision, with no exception, is made in compliance with value. What is better or worse? What is more or less important? Questions on valuation of cost, material, form, color, function, 
and purpose all influence each other like reverberating sound waves that mutually amplify and cancel out each other in interrelated patterning. To recap, from the vantage point of substance dualism, the outer world is a mechanical, objective extension in which the inner side of the conscious self is seen by contrast as the realm of subjective cognition. The value system arising from this worldview, where matter is not us, and ruled entirely by mechanistic laws, will tend to prioritize that which is amenable to mechanical analysis, rational clarity, and non-sensory measurement. Even color is thought of as something extra that is not real in any objective sense. A host of other personal or interpersonal affects or feelings that the built environment imparts to us join color as subordinate to mechanical concerns. Such a system will assuredly produce spectacular technical advances and, since money is so sensitive to personal affects but can also be readily measured by rationalized analysis, marketing then joins engineering as the other great force to most readily influence design. Yet, through this whole process, the stranding of feeling and inner life risks growing ever more acute. As we touched on in earlier episodes, this was something that the 19th century already dreaded and that expressionists across the board decried. Evidence abounds in images, writing, and our own daily experience of how creating a more perfect machine world is enormously convenient, but also destructively alienating. The world as real becomes dissonantly juxtaposed to the world as felt. Subjective and objective are understood as opposites rather than merely as acute and personal versus broad and shared examples of perception. The amendatory critique, that is, the alternate view that started out in a limited form with Leibniz and that Kandinsky was striving for, aimed to repair what mathematician Alfred North Whitehead would, not much later, describe as a bifurcation of nature into material and extended versus spiritual and cognizant substances. A deep irony in the mechanistic turn of the erstwhile expressionist Bauhaus is that it is not possible to address problems of human feeling by treating the human as a mechanical agent in a world related to by physicalized forces 
efficiencies, and needs. This is a hard limit of the modernist approach, and one that engendered exactly the materialist crisis that Kandinsky, Loos, and Motesius had protested and anticipated. While material and mechanical concerns made up a valid and separate crisis of their own that would be addressed with the push for clean worker housing, functional kitchens, and a streamlined workplace, what Kandinsky called the nightmare of materialism, which has turned the life of the universe into an evil, useless game, would only intensify. Kandinsky understood this nightmare as symptomatically stifling what he referred to as die innere Notwendigkeit, the inner need. Lost in such elegant translation is an urgent connotation of exigence, or emergency, that is not far off from the Sturm und Drang of yore, where the muse was apt to drag you along by the ear rather than whisper into it. Kandinsky presented the metaphor of color as a keyboard striking chords in the human soul as the first of his three guiding principles for this inner need as color harmony must rest only on a corresponding vibration in the human soul. The second principle was that Form harmony must rest only on a corresponding vibration of the human soul. His final step was the actualization of values through the physicalized decisions of the creative act. The choice of object, i.e. of one of the elements in the harmony of form, must be decided only by a corresponding vibration in the human soul. And this is a third guiding principle of the inner need. But what is this inner need really like? And why this repetitive emphasis on inside, when the piano metaphor clearly requires for the physical, and spiritual to function in concert. While Kandinsky was successfully reaching beyond the confines of substance dualism, he did not yet step outside of it towards interactionist dualism where the identity and world around it organically determine each other. As we mentioned last time, his inability to take personal identity beyond the inner realm of spirit and into a dialogue with physical actuality placed consequential limits on his theory and application of creative process. While he shies away from a direct definition of the inner need, he does describe three distinct components or what he calls 
mystical elements to it, all of which, again, relate to cognizant substance. 1. Every artist, as a creator, has something in him which calls for expression. This is the element of personality. That first mystical element presents the typical scholarly interpretation of inner need as expressionist impulse, but Kandinsky does not stop there. 2. Every artist, as a child of his age, is impelled to express the spirit of his age. This is the element of style, dictated by the period and particular country to which the artist belongs. It is doubtful how long the latter distinction will continue to last. Here is the call for an art and architecture of our own time that was so typical to modernism and that anticipates the cultural contextualizing that postmodern and post-colonial perspectives would reach for. It is also significant that Kandinsky saw those local cultural distinctions as eroding. 3. Every artist, as a servant of art, has to help the cause of art. This is the element of pure artistry, which is constant in all ages and among all nationalities. This indicates what would become a hallmark of the Bauhaus ethos, finding what is common across nationalities, cultures, and time in an effort that would later be praised or contested as a search for universals. So, Kandinsky's flight up the spiritual triangle progresses so far as to notice how art communicates across this chasm of the bifurcation of nature into matter and spirit. But when he defines and articulates how he sees the purpose of art moving forward, he falls back within dualistic separation by grounding this intersubstance communication entirely on the spiritual realm. His definition of creative identity was grounded in a teetering Western world picture, and this reactionary slip of the expressionist project that was originally conceived as a revolution in human awareness is part of what would earn it such venom from Dada. In episode 11, we discussed Raoul Hausmann's abhorrence for the aesthetic abstractions and moral ethical farces of the so-called German Philistines, who were, by 1919, largely correlative with the Expressionist movement. Perhaps the retreat into spirit was due to the sometimes violent but 
often purely technological or economic disruptions of the fin de siècle, a spiritual identity that was claimed to have once been coherent and whole was no longer integrated with the world around it. Dada severed connections to abstract and spiritual meaning while expressionism yearned for a transformed identity but withdrew from the world to find it. A year prior to Hausmann's article lambasting expressionistic hyper-spiritualism, Spengler's Decline of the West, which we know Itten and his Bauhaus students were closely reading and discussing, presented a remarkable reformulation of the connection between self and world that bridges the bifurcation of nature yet more closely than Kandinsky. When we wake up, at once something extends itself between a here and a there. We live the here as something proper. We experience the there as something alien. There is a dualizing of soul and world as poles of actuality. And in the world, there are both resistances which we grasp causally as things and properties, and impulses in which we feel beings, noumena, quote-unquote, just like ourselves, to be operative. But there is in it, further, something which, as it were, eliminates the duality. Actuality. The world in relation to a soul is for every individual the projection of the directed upon the domain of the extended, the proper mirroring itself on the alien. One's actuality then signifies one's self. That is to say, even as you define your environment, your environment also defines you, much like how, while a wave is something the whole ocean does, one can also observe local effects that this wave causes on the ocean around it. Spengler goes on to summarize this relation. By an act that is both creative and unconscious, for it is not I who actualize the possible, but it actualizes itself through me. The bridge of symbol. This is analogous to Kandinsky's piano of color. Is thrown between the living here and there. Suddenly, necessarily, and completely, the world comes into being out of the totality of received and remembered elements. 
And as it is an individual who apprehends the world, there is for each individual a singular world. There are, therefore, as many worlds as there are waking beings, and like living, like feeling groups of beings. Spengler's formulation of identity builds further from Leibniz's statement in the Monadology that the same city viewed from different sides appears to be different and to be, as it were, multiplied in perspectives. So many different universes are nevertheless only the perspectives of a single universe according to the different points of view of each monad. Spengler's conception of actuality expands upon the concept of diverse overlapping perspectives. This is how subjective and objective are resolved to be relations on a spectrum rather than opposites. He goes further by describing conceptually what neuroscientists like Damasio are empirically demonstrating, that consciousness is not located within a realm of spirit, but the product of a dialogue between the material and the non-material. Where does all this talk of identity lead us with art and design? In part, to illustrate that a focus on the internal and the spiritual engenders a hyper-rationalized axiomatic approach. Within the spiritual side of substance dualism, buildings become concepts above all else, and the goal of design becomes to communicate these concepts as compellingly as possible. Acting from a worldview of interactionist dualism, on the other hand, would compel one to empirically investigate the realm of feeling. Mind in relation to matter, rather than isolated mind alone, spurred to thought by matter. Kandinsky's tragic flaw was that while he observed the interactive phenomena between mind and matter, and even made experiments such as investigations into the relation of form and color that we will explore in due time, his own work, and that of modernism generally, tilted away from experience and feeling and towards mathematical purism. Systems of production and geometry were elevated above how the individual felt within them, to the point that, as the modern movement aged, revolts sprang up, bearing the same standard of combat against alienation that Kandinsky had initially espoused. We have seen Kandinsky conclude his three guiding principles of the inner need 
on the creator's choice of object. And, as Motesius emphasized with slightly different framing, the ultimate conclusion of design is always some manner of form, a produced thing. Yet, with Kandinsky's formulation, this produced object is subordinate to the artist's spiritual concept that triggered it. Alternately, it is subordinate to the corresponding affect that is awoken in the viewer. So when approached with clarity, a designed object is not an end in itself, but a means to an end. The relation between the object and the inner experience of the creator or viewer is a further objective for the creative process. And this holds true whether this relation encompasses physiological, technological, or spiritual ends. Design in the latter half of the 20th century would explore the cybernetic interrelations that this modified world provided. In Concerning the Spiritual, Kandinsky presciently wrote that we may be presently at the conception of a new great epoch, or we may see the opportunity squandered in aimless extravagance. He warned that, at the present time, any attempt to define this new art would be as useless as pulling a small bud open so as to make a fully blown flower. Years later, the Bauhaus professor would, despite these early words of caution, rush along in chasing what he clearly hoped were the offshoots of this new artistic sentiment. The buds would be forced in the astringent light of a young international style. In the introduction to his 1927 book, Point and Line to Plane, Kandinsky claims that since 1914, the tempo of our time seems to have been increasing in speed. Inner tensions accelerate this tempo in all spheres familiar to us. One year is possibly the equivalent of at least ten years of a quiet, normal period. The Bauhaus's dog years would, indeed, encompass great developments and polar change. Join us next time as we see how these clouds of theory reigned into the realm of practice. Kandinsky's student-aided contribution to the 1922 Jury Freie exhibition in Berlin and two houses that exemplified the ideological transformation of the Bauhaus, soon on Lapsus Lima.